The faithful Albert opened the front door with a beaming smile of welcome. Oh, glad to see you back, sir. I'm glad to be back. Tommy surrendered his suitcase. Where's Mrs. Beresford? We're not back yet, sir. What do you mean she's away? Been away three or four days, sir. But she'll be back for dinner. She rang up yesterday and said so. What's she up to, Albert? I couldn't say, sir. She took the car, but she took a lot of railway guides as well. She might be anywhere, as you might say. You might indeed, said Tommy with feeling. John O'Groats or Land's End. And probably missed the connection a little dither on the marsh on the way back. God bless British Railways. She rang up yesterday, you say? Did she say where she was ringing from? She didn't say. What time yesterday was this? Yesterday morning, before lunch. Just said everything was all right. She wasn't quite sure at what time she'd get home, but she thought she'd be back well before dinner, and suggested a chicken. That do you all right, sir? Yes, said Tommy, regarding his watch. But you'll have to make it pretty quickly now. I'll hold the chicken back, said Albert. Tommy grinned. That's right, he said. Catch it by the tail. How have you been, Albert? All well at home? Oh, I had a scare of measles, but that's all right. Doctor says it's only strawberry rash. Oh, good, said Tommy. He went upstairs, whistling a tune to himself. He went into the bathroom, shaved and washed, strode from there into the bedroom and looked around him. It had that curious look of disoccupancy some bedrooms put on when their owner is away. Its atmosphere was cold and unfriendly. Everything was scrupulously tidy and scrupulously clean. Tommy had the depressed feeling that a faithful dog might have had. Looking round him, he thought it was as though Tuppence had never been. No spilled powder, no book cast down with its back splayed out. Sir? It was Albert standing in the doorway. Well? I'm getting worried about the chicken. Oh, damn the chicken, said Tommy. You seem to have that chicken on your nerves. Well, I took it as you and she wouldn't be later than eight. Not later than eight sitting down, I mean. Well, I should have thought so too, said Tommy, glancing at his wristwatch. Good Lord, is it nearly five and twenty to nine? Yes, it is, sir. And the chicken? Oh, come on, said Tommy. You get that chicken out of the oven, and you and I'll eat it between us. Served up and right. Getting back well before dinner, indeed. Well, of course, some people do eat dinner late, said Albert. I went to Spain once, and believe me, you couldn't get a meal before ten o'clock. Ten p.m., I ask you. Ethan's. All right, said Tommy absent-mindedly. Uh, by the way, have you no idea where she has been all this time? Well, you mean the missus? Oh, I don't know, sir. Rushing around, I'd say. Her first idea was going to places by train, as far as I can make out. She was always looking in ABCs and timetables and things. Well, said Tommy, we all have our ways of amusing ourselves, I suppose. Hers seems to have been railway travel. I wonder where she is, all the same. Sitting in the ladies' waiting room at Little Dither on the Marsh, as likely as not. Well, she knew as you was coming home today, though, didn't she, sir? said Albert. She'll get here somehow, sure to. Tommy perceived that he was being offered loyal allegiance. He and Albert were linked together in expressing disapprobation of a tuppence who, in the course of her flirtations with British railways, was neglecting to come home in time to give a returning husband his proper welcome. Albert went away to release the chicken from its possible fate of cremation in the oven. Tommy, who had been about to follow him, stopped and looked towards the mantelpiece. He walked slowly to it and looked at the picture that hung there. 
Funny, her being so sure that she had seen that particular house before. Tommy felt quite certain that he hadn't seen it. Anyway, it was quite an ordinary house. There must be plenty of houses like that. He stretched up as far as he could towards it, and then, still not able to get a good view, unhooked it and took it close to the electric lamp. A quiet, gentle house. There was the artist's signature. The name began with a B, though he couldn't make out exactly what the name was. Bosworth? Bouchier? He'd get a magnifying glass and look at it more closely. A merry chime of cowbells came from the hall. Albert had highly approved of the Swiss cowbells that Tommy and Tuppence had brought back some time or other from Grindelwald. He was something of a virtuoso on them. Dinner was served. Tommy went into the dining room. It was odd, he thought, that Tuppence hadn't turned up by now. Even if she had had a puncture, which seemed probable, he rather wondered that she hadn't rung up to explain or excuse her delay. She might know that I'd worry, said Tommy to himself. Not, of course, that he did worry. Not about Tuppence. Tuppence was always all right. Albert contradicted his mood. I hope she hasn't had an accident, he remarked, presenting Tommy with a dish of cabbage and shaking his head gloomily. Oh, take that away, you know I hate cabbage, said Tommy. Why should she have had an accident? It's only half past nine now. Or oh, being on the road is plain murder nowadays, said Albert. Anyone might have an accident. The telephone bell rang. That's her, said Albert. Hastily reposing the dish of cabbage on the sideboard, he hurried out of the room. Tommy rose, abandoning his plate of chicken, and followed Albert. He was just saying, Here, I'll take it, when Albert spoke. Yes, sir? Uh, yes, Mr. Beresford is at home. He's here now. He turned his head to Tommy. It's a Dr. Murray for you, sir. Dr. Murray? Tommy thought for a moment. The name seemed familiar, but for the moment he couldn't remember who Dr. Murray was. If Tuppence had had an accident. And then with a sigh of relief he remembered that Dr. Murray had been the doctor who attended the old ladies at Sunny Ridge. Something perhaps to do with Aunt Ada's funeral forms. True child of his time, Tommy immediately assumed that it must be a question of some form or other, something he ought to have signed, or Dr. Murray ought to have signed. Hello? he said. Beresford here. Oh, I'm glad to catch you. Uh, you remember me, I hope. I attended your aunt, Miss Fanshawe. Oh, yes, of course I remember. What can I do? I really wanted to have a word or two with you sometime. Uh, I don't know if we can arrange a meeting, perhaps, in town one day? Oh, uh, I expect so, yes, uh, quite easily. But uh, is it something you can't say over the phone? I'd rather not say it over the telephone. There's no immediate hurry. I won't pretend there is, but uh, I should like to have a chat with you. Nothing wrong, said Tommy, and wondered why he put it that way. Why should there be anything wrong? Uh, not really. I may be making a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, probably am. But there have been some rather curious developments at Sunny Ridge. Nothing to do with Mrs. Lancaster, is it? asked Tommy. Mrs. Lancaster? The doctor seemed surprised. Oh, uh, no, she left some time ago. In fact, before your aunt died, this is something quite different. I've been away. I only just got back. May I ring you up tomorrow morning? We could fix something then. All right, I'll give you my telephone number. I shall be at my surgery until 10 a.m. Bad news? 
asked Albert as Tommy returned to the dining room. No, uh, of course it isn't bad news. I thought perhaps the missus, she's all right, said Tommy. She always is. Probably gone herring off after some wildcat clue or other. You know what she's like. I'm not going to worry any more. Take away this plate of chicken. You've been keeping it hot in the oven and it's inedible. Bring me some coffee and then I'm going to bed. There will probably be a letter tomorrow, delayed in the post, you know what the posts are like, or there'll be a wire from her or she'll ring up. But there was no letter next day. No telephone call. No wire. Albert eyed Tommy, opened his mouth and shut it again several times, judging quite rightly that gloomy predictions on his part would not be welcomed. At last Tommy had pity on him. He swallowed a last mouthful of toast and marmalade, washed it down with coffee, and spoke. All right, Albert, I'll say it first. Where is she? What's happened to her? And what are we going to do about it? Get on to the police, sir. I'm not sure. You see, Tommy paused. Well, if she's had an accident, she's got her driving license on her, and plenty of identification papers. Hospitals are very prompt at reporting these things, and getting in touch with relatives, all that. I don't want to be precipitate. She... she mightn't want it. You've no idea... no idea at all, Albert, where she was going. Nothing she said, no particular place or county, not a mention of some name. Albert shook his head. What was she feeling like? Pleased? Excited? Unhappy? Worried? Albert's response was immediate. Pleased as punch. Bursting with it. Well, like a terrier off on the trail, said Tommy. That's right, sir. You know how she gets. Onto something. Now, I wonder... Tommy paused in consideration. Something had turned up, and, as he had just said to Albert, Tuppence had rushed off like a terrier on the scent. The day before yesterday she had rung up to announce her return. Why, then, hadn't she returned? Perhaps at this moment, thought Tommy, she's sitting somewhere, telling lies to people so hard that she can't think of anything else. If she were engrossed in pursuit, she would be extremely annoyed if he, Tommy, were to rush off to the police bleating like a sheep that his wife had disappeared. He could hear Tuppence saying, How you could be so fatuous as to do such a thing? I can look after myself perfectly. You ought to know that by this time. But could she look after herself? One was never quite sure where Tuppence's imagination could take her. Into danger? There hadn't so far been any evidence of danger in this business, except, as aforesaid, in Tuppence's imagination. If he were to go to the police, saying his wife had not returned home, as she announced she was going to do, the police would sit there, looking tactful, though possibly grinning inwardly, and would then presumably, still in a tactful way, ask what men friends his wife had got. I'll find her myself, declared Tommy. She's somewhere. Whether it's north, south, east, or west, I've no idea. And she was a silly cuckoo not to leave word when she rang up where she was. A gang's got her, perhaps, said Albert. Oh, be your age, Albert. You've outgrown that sort of stuff years ago. What are you going to do, sir? I'm going to London, said Tommy, glancing at the clock. First, I'm going to have lunch at my club with Dr. Murray, who rang me up last night and who's got something to say to me about my late deceased aunt's affairs. I might possibly get a useful hint from him. After all, this business started at Sunny Ridge. I'm also taking that picture that's hanging over our bedroom mantelpiece up there. Well, you mean you're taking it to Scotland Yard? No, said Tommy. I'm taking it to Bond Street. Chapter 11 Bond Street and Dr. Murray Tommy jumped out of a taxi 
paid the driver, and leaned back into the cab to take out a rather clumsily done-up parcel, which was clearly a picture. Tucking as much as he could of it under his arm, he entered the new Athenian galleries, one of the longest established and most important picture galleries in London. Tommy was not a great patron of the arts, but he had come to the new Athenian because he had a friend who officiated there. Officiated was the only word to use because the air of sympathetic interest, the hushed voice, the pleasurable smile, all seemed highly ecclesiastical. A fair-haired young man detached himself and came forward, his face lighting up with a smile of recognition. Hello, Tommy, he said. Haven't seen you for a long time. What's that you've got under your arm? Don't tell me you've been taking to painting pictures in your old age. A lot of people do. Results usually deplorable. I doubt if creative art was ever my long suit, said Tommy, though I must admit I found myself strongly attracted the other day by a small book telling in the most simple terms how a child of five could learn to paint in watercolours. God help us if you're going to take to that. Grandma Moses in reverse. To tell you the truth, Robert, I merely want to appeal to your expert knowledge of pictures. I want your opinion on this. Deftly, Robert took the picture from Tommy and skilfully removed its clumsy wrappings with the expertise of a man accustomed to handle the parceling up and deparceling of all different sized works of art. He took the picture and set it on a chair, peered into it to look at it, and then withdrew five or six steps away. He turned his gaze towards Tommy. Well, he said, what about it? What do you want to know? Do you want to sell it, is that it? Uh, no, said Tommy, I don't want to sell it, Robert. I want to know about it. To begin with, I want to know who painted it. Actually, said Robert, if you had wanted to sell it, it would be quite saleable nowadays. It wouldn't have been ten years ago, but Boscoan's just coming into fashion again. Boscoan? Tommy looked at him inquiringly. Is that the name of the artist? I saw it was signed with something beginning with B, but I couldn't read the name. Oh, it's Boscoan, all right. Very popular painter about twenty-five years ago. Sold well, had plenty of shows. People bought him all right. Technically, a very good painter. Then, in the usual cycle of events, he went out of fashion. Finally, hardly any demand at all for his works. But lately, he's had a revival. He, Stitchwort, and Fondella, they're all coming up. Boscoan, repeated Tommy. B-O-S-C-O-W-A-N, said Robert obligingly. Is he still painting? No, he's dead. Died some years ago. Quite an old chap by then. Sixty-five, I think, when he died. Quite a prolific painter, you know. A lot of his canvases about. Actually, we're thinking of having a show of him here in about four or five months' time. We ought to do well over it, I think. Why are you so interested in him? Oh, it'd be too long a story to tell you, said Tommy. One of these days I'll ask you out to lunch and give you the doings from the beginning. It's a long, complicated, and rather an idiotic story. All I wanted to know is all about this Boscoan, and if you happen to know by any chance where this house is that's represented here. Well, I couldn't tell you the last for a moment. It's the sort of thing he did paint, you know, small country houses in rather isolated spots usually. Sometimes a farmhouse, sometimes just a cow or two around, sometimes a farm cart. But if so, in the far distance. Quiet rural scenes, nothing sketchy or messy. Sometimes the surface looks almost like enamel. It was a peculiar technique, and people liked it. 
A good many of the things he painted were in France. Normandy, mostly. Churches. I've got one picture of his here now. Wait a minute, I'll get it for you. He went to the head of the staircase and shouted down to someone below. Presently, he came back holding a small canvas which he propped on another chair. There you are, he said. Church in Normandy. Yes, said Tommy, I see. Same sort of thing. My wife says nobody ever lived in that house, other one I brought in. I see now what she meant. I don't see that anybody was attending service in that church or ever will. Perhaps your wife's got something. Quiet, peaceful dwellings with no human occupancy. He didn't often paint people, you know. Sometimes there's a figure or two in the landscape, and more often not. In a way, I think that gives them their special charm. A sort of isolationist feeling. It was as though he removed all the human beings, and the peace of the countryside was all the better without them. Come to think of it, that's maybe why the general taste has swung round to him. Too many people nowadays, too many cars, too many noises on the road, too much noise and bustle. Peace. Perfect peace. Leave it all to nature. Yes, I shouldn't wonder. What sort of man was he? Oh, I didn't know him personally, before my time. Pleased with himself, by all accounts. Thought he was a better painter than he was, probably. Put on a bit of side. Kindly. Quite likeable. I for the girls. And you've no idea where this particular piece of countryside exists. It is England, I suppose. Well, I should think so, yes. Do you want me to find out for you? Could you? Probably the best thing to do would be to ask his wife, his widow, rather. He married Emma Wing, the sculptor, well-known, not very productive, does quite powerful work. You could go and ask her. She lives in Hampstead. I can give you the address. We've been corresponding with her a good deal lately over the question of this show of her husband's work we're doing. We're having a few of her smaller pieces of sculpture as well. I'll get the address for you. He went to the desk, turned over a ledger, scrawled something on a card and brought it back. There you are, Tommy, he said. I don't know what the deep, dark mystery is. Always been a man of mystery, haven't you? It's a nice representation of Boscowan's work you've got there. We might like to use it for the show. I'll send you a line to remind you near the time. You don't know a Mrs. Lancaster, do you? Well, I can't think of one offhand. Is she an artist or something of the kind? Uh, no, I don't think so. She's just an old lady living for the last few years in an old lady's home. She comes into it because this picture belonged to her until she gave it away to an aunt of mine. Well, I can't say the name means anything to me. Better go and talk to Mrs. Boscowan. What's she like? Oh, she was a good bit younger than he was, I should say. Quite a personality. He nodded his head once or twice. Yes, quite a personality. You'll find that out, I expect. He took the picture, handed it down the staircase with instructions to someone below to do it up again. Nice for you having so many myrmidons at your beck and call, said Tommy. He looked round him, noticing his surroundings for the first time. Oh, what's this you've got here now? He said with distaste. Paul Jagorowski. Interesting young Slav, said to produce all his works under the influence of drugs. Don't you like him? Tommy concentrated his gaze on a big string bag, which seemed to have enmeshed itself in a metallic green field full of distorted cows. Oh, frankly, no. Philistine, said Robert. Come out and have a bite of lunch. I can't. I've got a meeting with a doctor at my club. Not ill, are you? I'm in the best of health. My blood pressure is so good that it disappoints every doctor to whom I submit it. Well, then what do you want to see a doctor for? 
Oh, said Tommy cheerfully. I've just got to see a doctor about a body. Thanks for your help. Goodbye. Tommy greeted Dr. Murray with some curiosity. He presumed it was some formal matter to do with Aunt Ada's decease. But why on earth Dr. Murray would not at least mention the subject of his visit over the telephone, Tommy couldn't imagine. I'm afraid I'm a little late, said Dr. Murray, shaking hands. But the traffic was pretty bad, and I wasn't exactly sure of the locality. I don't know this part of London very well. Well, too bad you had to come all the way here, said Tommy. I could have met you somewhere more convenient, you know. Oh, you've time on your hands, then, just now? Just at the moment, yes. I've been away for the last week. Yes, I believe someone told me so when I rang up. Tommy indicated a chair, suggested refreshment, placed cigarettes and matches by Dr. Murray's side. When the two men had established themselves comfortably, Dr. Murray opened the conversation. I'm sure I've aroused your curiosity, he said, but as a matter of fact, we're in a spot of trouble at Sunny Ridge. It's a difficult and perplexing matter, and, in one way, it's nothing to do with you. I've no earthly right to trouble you with it, but there's just an off chance that you might know something which would help me. Well, of course, I'll do anything I can. Something to do with my aunt? Miss Fanshawe? Uh, not directly, no, but in a way she does come into it. I uh, can speak to you in confidence, can't I, Mr. Beresford? Oh, yes, certainly. As a matter of fact, I was talking the other day to a mutual friend of ours. He was telling me a few things about you. I gather that in the last war you had rather a delicate assignment. Oh, I wouldn't put it quite as seriously as that, said Tommy, in his most non-committal manner. Oh, no, I quite realise that it's not a thing to be talked about. I don't think that really matters nowadays. It's a good long time since the war. My wife and I were younger then. Anyway, it's nothing to do with that that I wanted to speak to you about, but at least I feel that I can speak frankly to you, that I can trust you not to repeat what I'm saying now, though it's possible that it all may have to come out later. A spot of trouble at Sunny Ridge, you say? Yes, not very long ago one of our patients died, a Mrs. Moody. I don't know if you ever met her or if your aunt ever talked about her. Mrs. Moody, Tommy reflected. No, I don't think so. Anyway, not so far as I can remember. Uh, she was not one of our older patients. She was still on the right side of seventy, and she was not seriously ill in any way. It was just a case of a woman with no near relatives and no one to look after her in the domestic line. She fell into the category of what I often call to myself a flutterer, women who more and more resemble hens as they grow older. They cluck. They forget things. They run themselves into difficulties, and they worry. They get themselves wrought up about nothing at all. There is very little the matter with them. They're not, strictly speaking, mentally disturbed. But they just cluck, Tommy suggested. As you say, Mrs. Moody clucked. She caused the nurses a fair amount of trouble, although they were quite fond of her. She had a habit of forgetting when she'd had her meals, making a fuss because no dinner had been served, when, as a matter of fact, she'd actually just eaten a very good dinner. Oh, said Tommy, enlightened. Mrs. Coco. I beg your pardon? I'm sorry, said Tommy. It's a name my wife and I had for her. She was yelling for Nurse Jane one day when we passed along the passage and saying she hadn't had her cocoa. Rather a nice-looking, scatty little woman. But it made us both laugh, and we fell into the habit of calling her Mrs. Coco. And so she's died. Well, I wasn't particularly surprised when the death happened, said Dr. Murray. 
To be able to prophesy with any exactitude when elderly women will die is practically impossible. Women whose health is seriously affected, who one feels as a result of physical examination will hardly last the year out, sometimes are good for another ten years. They have a tenacious hold on life which mere physical disability will not quench. There are other people whose health is reasonably good and who may, one thinks, make old bones. They, on the other hand, catch bronchitis or flu, seem unable to have the stamina to recuperate from it, and die with surprising ease. So, as I say, as a medical attendant to an elderly lady's home, I am not surprised when what might be called a fairly unexpected death occurs. Now, this case of Mrs. Moody, however, was somewhat different. She died in her sleep without having exhibited any sign of illness, and I could not help feeling that, in my opinion, her death was unexpected. I will use the phrase that has always intrigued me in Shakespeare's play, Macbeth. I have always wondered what Macbeth meant when he said of his wife, she should have died hereafter. Yes, I remember wondering once myself what Shakespeare was getting at, said Tommy. I forget whose production it was and who was playing Macbeth, but there was a strong suggestion in that particular production, and Macbeth certainly played it in a way to suggest that he was hinting to the medical attendant that Lady Macbeth would be better out of the way. Presumably the medical attendant took the hint. It was then that Macbeth, feeling safe after his wife's death, feeling that she could no longer damage him by her indiscretions or her rapidly failing mind, expresses his genuine affection and grief for her. She should have died hereafter. Exactly, said Dr. Murray. It is what I felt about Mrs. Moody. I felt that she should have died hereafter, not just three weeks ago, of no apparent cause. Tommy did not reply. He merely looked at the doctor inquiringly. Medical men have certain problems. If you're puzzled over the cause of a patient's death, there is only one sure way to tell. By a post-mortem. Post-mortems are not appreciated by relatives of the deceased. But if a doctor demands a post-mortem, and the result is, as it perfectly well may be, a case of natural causes, or some disease or malady which does not always give outward signs or symptoms, then the doctor's career can be quite seriously affected by his having made a questionable diagnosis. I can see that it must have been difficult. But the relatives in question are distant cousins. So I took it upon myself to get their consent, as it was a matter of medical interest, to know the cause of death. When a patient dies in her sleep, it is advisable to add to one's medical knowledge. I wrapped it up a good bit, mind you. Didn't make it too formal. Luckily, they couldn't care less. I felt very relieved in mind. Once the autopsy had been performed, and if all was well, I could give a death certificate without a qualm. Anyone can die of what is amateurishly called heart failure from one of several different causes. Actually, Mrs. Moody's heart was in really very good shape for her age. She suffered from arthritis and rheumatism and occasional trouble with her liver, but none of these things seemed to accord with her passing away in her sleep. Dr. Murray came to a stop. Tommy opened his lips and then shut them again. The doctor nodded. Yes, Mr. Beresford, you can see where I am tending. Death has resulted from an overdose of morphine. Good Lord! Tommy stared. Yes, it seemed quite incredible, but there was no getting away from the analysis. The question was, how was that morphia administered? She was not on morphia, she was not a patient who suffered pain. There were three possibilities. She might have taken it by accident. Unlikely. 
She might have got hold of some other patient's medicine by mistake, but that again is not particularly likely. Patients are not entrusted with supplies of morphia, and we do not accept drug addicts who might have a supply of such things in their possession. It could have been deliberate suicide, but I should be very slow to accept that. Mrs. Moody, though a warrior, was of a perfectly cheerful disposition, and I am quite sure had never given a thought to ending her life. The third possibility is that a fatal overdose was deliberately administered to her. But by whom? And why? Naturally, there are supplies of morphia and other drugs which Miss Packard, as a registered hospital nurse and matron, is perfectly entitled to have in her possession, and which she keeps in a locked cupboard. In such cases as sciatica or rheumatoid arthritis, there can be such severe and desperate pain that morphia is occasionally administered. We had hoped that we might come across some circumstances in which Mrs. Moody had a dangerous amount of morphia administered to her by mistake, or which she herself took under the delusion that it was a cure for indigestion or insomnia. We have not been able to find any such circumstances possible. The next thing we have done at Miss Packard's suggestion, and I agreed with her, is to look carefully at the records of such deaths as have taken place at Sunny Ridge in the last two years. There have not been many of them, I am glad to say. I think seven in all, which is a pretty fair average for people of that age group. Two deaths of bronchitis, perfectly straightforward. Two of flu, always a possible killer during the winter months, owing to the slight resistance offered by frail elderly women. And three others. He paused and said, Mr. Beresford, I am not satisfied about those three others. Certainly not about two of them. They were perfectly probable. They were not unexpected, but I will go as far as saying that they were unlikely. They are not cases that on reflection and research I am entirely satisfied about. One has to accept the possibility that, unlikely as it seems, there is someone at Sunny Ridge who is, possibly for mental reasons, a killer. An entirely unsuspected killer. There was silence for some moments. Tommy gave a sigh. I don't doubt what you've told me, he said. But all the same, frankly, it seems unbelievable. These things, surely they can't happen. Oh, yes, said Dr. Murray grimly. They happen all right. You go over some of the pathological cases. A woman who took on domestic service. She worked as a cook in various households. She was a nice, kind, pleasant-seeming woman, gave her employers faithful service, cooked well, enjoyed being with them. Yet, sooner or later, things happened. Usually a plate of sandwiches, sometimes picnic food. For no apparent motive, arsenic was added. Two or three poisoned sandwiches among the rest. Apparently sheer chance dictated who took and ate them. There seemed no personal venom. Sometimes no tragedy happened. The same woman was three or four months in a situation, and there was no trace of illness. Nothing. Then she left to do another job. And in that next job, Within three weeks, two of the family died after eating bacon for breakfast. The fact that all these things happened in different parts of England and at irregular intervals made it some time before the police got on her track. She used a different name, of course, each time. But there are so many pleasant, capable, middle-aged women who can cook, it was hard to find out which particular woman it was. Why did she do it? I don't think anybody has ever really known. There have been several different theories. 
especially, of course, by psychologists. She was a somewhat religious woman, and it seems possible that some form of religious insanity made her feel that she had a divine command to rid the world of certain people. But it does not seem that she herself had borne the many personal animus. Then there was the Frenchwoman, Jeanne Gabron, who was called the Angel of Mercy. She was so upset when her neighbors had ill children, she hurried to nurse those children, sat devotedly at their bedside. There again it was some time before people discovered that the children she nursed never recovered. Instead, they all died. And why? It is true that when she was young, her own child died. She appeared to be prostrated with grief. Perhaps that was the cause of her career of crime. If her child died, so should the children of other women. Or it may be, as some thought, that her own child was one of the victims. You're giving me the Chills down my spine, said Tommy. I'm taking the most melodramatic examples, said the doctor. It may be something much simpler than that. You remember in the case of Armstrong, anyone who had in any way offended him or insulted him, or indeed, if he even thought anyone had insulted him, that person was quickly asked to tea and given arsenic sandwiches, a sort of intensified touchiness. His first crimes were obviously mere crimes for personal advantage, inheriting of money, the removal of a wife so that he could marry another woman. And then there was Nurse Warriner, who kept a home for elderly people. They made over what means they had to her and were guaranteed a comfortable old age until death came. But death did not delay very long. There, too, it was morphia that was administered. A very kindly woman, but with no scruples. She regarded herself, I believe, as a benefactor. You've no idea— if your surmise about these deaths is true, who it could be? No, there seems no pointer of any kind. Taking the view that the killer is probably insane, insanity is a very difficult thing to recognize in some of its manifestations. Is it somebody, shall we say, who dislikes elderly people, who had been injured or has had her life ruined, or so she thinks, by somebody elderly? Or is it possibly someone who has her own ideas of mercy-killing? and thinks that everyone over sixty years of age should be kindly exterminated. It could be anyone, of course. A patient, a member of staff, a nurse, a domestic worker. I've discussed this at great length with Millicent Packard, who runs the place. She is a highly competent woman, shrewd and businesslike, with keen supervision both of the guests there and of her own staff. She insists that she has no suspicion and no clue whatever, and I'm sure that is perfectly true. But— why come to me? What can I do? Your aunt, Miss Fanshawe, was a resident there for some years. She was a woman of very considerable mental capacity, though she often pretended otherwise. She had unconventional ways of amusing herself by putting on an appearance of senility, but she was actually very much all there. What I want you to try and do, Mr. Beresford, is to think hard. You and your wife, too. Is there anything you can remember— that Miss Fanshawe ever said or hinted that might give us a clue. Something she had seen or noticed, something that someone had told her, something that she herself had thought peculiar. Old ladies see and notice a lot, and a really shrewd one like Miss Fanshawe would know a surprising amount of what went on in a place like Sunny Ridge. These old ladies are not busy, you see. They have all the time in the world to look around them and make deductions, and even jump to conclusions that may seem fantastic but are sometimes, surprisingly, 
Entirely correct. Tommy shook his head. I know what you mean, but I can't remember anything of that kind. Your wife's away from home, I gather. You don't think she might remember something that hadn't struck you? Well, I'll ask her, but I doubt it. He hesitated, then made up his mind. Uh, Look here, there was something that worried my wife, about one of the old ladies, a Mrs. Lancaster. Oh, Mrs. Lancaster, yes? My wife's got it into her head that Mrs. Lancaster has been taken away by some so-called relations very suddenly. As a matter of fact, Mrs. Lancaster gave a picture to my aunt as a present, and my wife felt that she ought to offer to return the picture to Mrs. Lancaster, so she tried to get in touch with her to know if Mrs. Lancaster would like the picture returned to her. Well, that was very thoughtful of Mrs. Beresford, I'm sure. Only she found it very hard to get in touch with her. She got the address of the hotel where they were supposed to be staying, Mrs. Lancaster and her relations, but nobody of that name had been staying there, or had booked rooms there. Oh, well, that was rather odd. Yes, Tuppence thought it was rather odd, too. They had left no other forwarding address at Sunny Ridge. In fact, we've made several attempts to get in touch with Mrs. Lancaster, or with this Mrs. Johnson, I think the name was, but have been quite unable to get in touch with them. There was a solicitor who I believe paid all the bills and made all the arrangements with Miss Packard, and we got into communication with him, but he could only give me the address of a bank. Banks, said Tommy dryly, don't give you any information. Not if they've been told not to by their clients, I agree. My wife wrote to Mrs. Lancaster, care of the bank, and also to Mrs. Johnson, but she's never had any reply. Well, that seems a little unusual. Still, people don't always answer letters. They may have gone abroad. Uh, Quite so, it didn't worry me, but it has worried my wife. She seems convinced that something has happened to Mrs. Lancaster. In fact, during the time I was away from home, she said she was going to investigate further. I don't know what exactly she meant to do. Perhaps see the hotel personally, or the bank, or try the solicitor. Anyway, she was going to try and get a little more information. Dr. Murray looked at him politely, but with a trace of patient boredom in his manner. Why did she think exactly? She thinks that Mrs. Lancaster is in danger of some kind, even that something may have happened to her. The doctor raised his eyebrows. Oh, really? I should hardly think— This may seem quite idiotic to you, said Tommy, but you see, my wife rang up saying she would be back yesterday evening, and uh, she didn't arrive. She said definitely that she was coming back? Yes. She knew I was coming home, you see, from this conference business, so she rang up to let our man Albert know that she'd be back to dinner. And that seems to you an unlikely thing for her to do, said Dr. Murray. He was now looking at Tommy with some interest. Yes, said Tommy. It's very unlike Tuppence. If she'd been delayed or changed her plans, she would have rung up again or sent a telegram. And you're worried about her? Yes, I am, said Tommy. Hmm. Have you consulted the police? No, said Tommy. What did the police think? It's not as though I had any reason to believe that she's in trouble or danger or anything of that kind. I mean, if she'd had an accident or was in a hospital, anything like that, somebody would communicate with me soon enough, wouldn't they? I should say so, yes. If she had some means of identification on her, or she'd have her driving license on her, probably letters and various other things. 
Dr. Murray frowned. Tommy went on in a rush. And now you come along and bring up all this business of Sunny Ridge, people who've died when they oughtn't to have died. Supposing this old bean got onto something, saw something, or suspected something, and began chattering about it. She'd have to be silenced in some way, so she was whisked out of it quickly and taken off to some place or other where she wouldn't be traced. I can't help feeling that the whole thing ties up somehow. It's odd. It's certainly odd. What do you propose to do next? I'm going to do a bit of searching myself. Try these solicitors first. They may be quite all right, but I'd like to have a look at them and draw my own conclusions. Chapter 12 Tommy Meets an Old Friend From the opposite side of the road, Tommy surveyed the premises of Messrs. Partingdale, Harris, Lockeridge and Partingdale. They looked eminently respectable and old-fashioned. The brass plate was well-worn but nicely polished. He crossed the street and passed through swing doors to be greeted by the muted note of typewriters at full speed. He addressed himself to an open mahogany window on his right, which bore the legend, Inquiries. Inside was a small room where three women were typing, and two male clerks were bending over desks, copying documents. There was a faintly musty atmosphere, with a decidedly legal flavour. A woman of thirty-five-odd, with a severe air, faded blonde hair, and pince-nez, rose from her typewriter and came to the window. "'Can I help you? I would like to see Mr. Eccles.' The woman's air of severity redoubled. "'Have you an appointment?' "'I'm afraid not. I'm just passing through London today. I'm afraid Mr. Eccles is rather busy this morning. Perhaps another member of the firm. It was Mr. Eccles I particularly wanted to see. I've already had some correspondence with him.' "'Oh, I see. Perhaps you'll give me your name?' Tommy gave his name and address, and the blonde woman retired to confer with the telephone on her desk. After a murmured conversation, she returned. "'The clerk will show you into the waiting-room. Mr. Eccles will be able to see you in about ten minutes' time.' Tommy was ushered into a waiting-room, which had a bookcase of rather ancient and ponderous-looking law tomes, and a round table covered with various financial papers. Tommy sat there, and went over in his own mind his planned methods of approach. He wondered what Mr. Eccles would be like. When he was shown in at last, and Mr. Eccles rose from a desk to receive him, he decided, for no particular reason that he could name to himself, that he did not like Mr. Eccles. He also wondered why he did not like Mr. Eccles. There seemed no valid reason for dislike. Mr. Eccles was a man between forty and fifty, with greyish hair thinning a little of the temples, he had a long, rather sad-looking face, with a particularly wooden expression, shrewd eyes, and quite a pleasant smile, which from time to time rather unexpectedly broke up the natural melancholy of his countenance. Mr. Beresford? Yes, it is really rather a trifling matter, but my wife has been worried about it. She wrote to you, I believe, or possibly she may have rung you up to know if you could give her the address of a Mrs. Lancaster. Mrs. Lancaster, said Mr. Eccles, retaining a perfect poker face. It was not even a question. He just left the name hanging in the air. A cautious man, thought Tommy. But then it's second nature for lawyers to be cautious. In fact, if they were one's own lawyers, one would prefer them to be cautious. He went on. Until lately, living at a place called Sunny Ridge, an establishment and a very good one for elderly ladies. In fact, 
An aunt of my own was there and was extremely happy and comfortable. Oh, yes, of course, of course, I remember now. Mrs. Lancaster, yes. She is, I think, no longer living there. That is right, is it not? Yes, said Tommy. At the moment I do not exactly recall, he stretched out a hand towards the telephone, I will just refresh my memory. I can tell you quite simply, said Tommy. My wife wanted Mrs. Lancaster's address because she happens to be in possession of a piece of property which originally belonged to Mrs. Lancaster, a picture, in fact. It was given by Mrs. Lancaster as a present to my aunt, Miss Fanshawe. My aunt died recently, and her few possessions have come into our keeping. This included the picture which was given her by Mrs. Lancaster. My wife likes it very much, but she feels rather guilty about it. She thinks that it may be a picture Mrs. Lancaster values, and in that case she feels she ought to offer to return it to Mrs. Lancaster. Ah, I see, said Mr. Eccles. It is very conscientious of your wife, I am sure. One never knows, said Tommy, smiling pleasantly, what elderly people may feel about their possessions. She may have been glad for my aunt to have it, since my aunt admired it, but as my aunt died very soon after having received this gift— it seems perhaps a little unfair that it should pass into the possession of strangers. There is no particular title on the picture. It represents a house somewhere in the country. For all I know, it may be some family house associated with Mrs. Lancaster. Quite, quite, said Mr. Eccles. But I don't think— There was a knock, and the door opened, and a clerk entered, and produced a sheet of paper which he placed before Mr. Eccles. Mr. Eccles looked down. Ah, yes, ah, yes, I remember now. Yes, I believe Mrs. Uh, he glanced down at Tommy's card lying on his desk. Beresford rang up and had a few words with me. I advised her to get into touch with the Southern Counties Bank, Hammersmith branch. This is the only address I myself know. Letters addressed to the bank's address, care of Mrs. Richard Johnson, would be forwarded. Mrs. Johnson is, I believe, a niece or distant cousin of Mrs. Lancaster's, and it was Mrs. Johnson who made all the arrangements with me for Mrs. Lancaster's reception at Sunny Ridge. She asked me to make full inquiries about the establishment, since she had only heard about it casually from a friend. We did so, I can assure you, most carefully. It was said to be an excellent establishment, and I believe Mrs. Johnson's relative, Mrs. Lancaster, spent several years there quite happily. As she left there, though rather suddenly, Tommy suggested. Yes, yes, I believe she did. Mrs. Johnson, it seems, returned rather unexpectedly recently from East Africa. So many people have done so. She and her husband had, I believe, resided in Kenya for many years. They were making various new arrangements and felt able to assume personal care of their elderly relative. I'm afraid I have no knowledge of Mrs. Johnson's present whereabouts. I had a letter from her thanking me and settling accounts she owed and directing that if— there was any necessity for communicating with her, I should address my letters care of the bank, as she was undecided as yet, where she and her husband would actually be residing. I am afraid, Mr. Beresford, that that is all I know. His manner was gentle but firm. It displayed no embarrassment of any kind nor disturbance, but the finality of his tone was very definite. Then he unbent, and his manner softened a little. I shouldn't really worry, you know, Mr. Beresford, he said reassuringly, or rather, I shouldn't let your wife worry. Mrs. Lancaster, I believe, is quite an old lady and inclined to be forgetful. She's probably forgotten all about this picture that she gave away. 
She is, I believe, seventy-five or seventy-six years of age. One forgets very easily at that age, you know. And did you know her personally? No, I never actually met her. But you knew Mrs. Johnson. I met her when she came here occasionally to consult me as to arrangements. She seemed a pleasant, business-like woman, quite competent in the arrangements she was making. He rose and said, I am so sorry I can't help you, Mr. Beresford. It was a gentle but firm dismissal. Tommy came out onto the Bloomsbury Street and looked about him for a taxi. The parcel he was carrying, though not heavy, was of a fairly awkward size. He looked up for a moment at the building he had just left. Eminently respectable, long established. Nothing you would fault there. Nothing apparently wrong with Messrs. Partingdale, Harris, Lockeridge and Partingdale. Nothing wrong with Mr. Eccles. No signs of alarm or despondency. No shiftiness or uneasiness. In books, Tommy thought gloomily, a mention of Mrs. Lancaster or Mrs. Johnson should have brought a guilty start or a shifty glance, something to show that the names registered that all was not well. Things didn't seem to happen like that in real life. All Mr. Eccles had looked like was a man who was too polite to resent having his time wasted by such an inquiry as Tommy had just made. But all the same, thought Tommy to himself, I don't like Mr. Eccles. He recalled to himself vague memories of the past of other people that he had for some reason not liked. Very often those hunches, for hunches as all they were, had been right. But perhaps it was simpler than that. If you had had a good many dealings in your time with personalities, you had a sort of feeling about them, just as an expert antique dealer knows instinctively the taste and look and feel of a forgery before getting down to expert tests and examinations. The thing is just wrong. The same with pictures. The same, presumably, with a cashier in a bank who is offered a first-class, spurious banknote. He sounds all right, thought Tommy. He looks all right. He speaks all right, but all the same... He waved frantically at a taxi which gave him a direct and cold look, increased its speed and drove on. Swine, thought Tommy. His eyes roved up and down the street seeking for a more obliging vehicle. A fair amount of people were walking on the pavement, a few hurrying, some strolling, one man gazing at a brass plate just across the road from him. After a close scrutiny, he turned round, and Tommy's eyes opened a little wider. He knew that face. He watched the man walk to the end of the street, pause and turn back again. Somebody came out of the building behind Tommy, and at that moment the man opposite increased his pace a little, still walking on the other side of the road, but keeping pace with the man who had come out of the door. The man who had come out of Messrs. Partingdale, Harris, Lockeridge, and Partingdale's doorway was, Tommy thought, looking after this retreating figure. Almost certainly Mr. Eccles. At the same moment, a taxi lingering in a pleasant, tempting manner came along. Tommy raised his hand. The taxi drew up. He opened the door and got in. Where to? Tommy hesitated for a moment, looking at his parcel. About to give an address, he changed his mind and said, Fourteen Lion Street. A quarter of an hour later, he had reached his destination. He rang the bell after paying off the taxi and asked for Mr. Ivor Smith. When he entered a second-floor room, 
A man sitting at a table facing the window swung round and said with faint surprise, Hello, Tommy. Fancy seeing you. It's a long time. What are you doing here? Just tooling round, looking up your old friends? Not quite as good as that, Ivor. I suppose you're on your way home after a conference. Yes. All a lot of the usual talky-talky, I suppose. No conclusions drawn, nothing helpful said. Quite right. All a sheer waste of time. Mostly listening to old bogey Waddock shooting his mouth off, I expect. Crashing ball gets worse every year. Oh, well. Tommy sat down in the chair that was pushed towards him, accepted a cigarette and said, I just wondered, it's a very long shot, whether you know anything of a derogatory nature about one Eccles, a solicitor of the firm of Messrs. Partingdale, Harris, Lockeridge and Partingdale. Well, 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 said the man called Ivor Smith. He raised his eyebrows. They were very convenient eyebrows for raising. The end of them, near the nose, went up, and the opposite end, near the cheek, went down, to an almost astonishing extent. They made him, on very little provocation, look like a man who had had a severe shock. But actually it was quite a common gesture with him. Run up against Eccles somewhere, have you? Well, the trouble is, said Tommy, that I know nothing about him. And you want to know something about him? Yes. Hmm. What made you come and see me? I saw Anderson outside. It was a long time since I'd seen him, but I recognized him. He was keeping someone or other under observation. Whoever it was, it was someone from the building from which I had just emerged. Two firms of lawyers practiced there, and one firm of chartered accountants. Of course, it may be any one of them, or any member of any one of them, but a man walking away down the street looked to me like Eccles, and I just wondered if, by a lucky chance, it could have been my Mr. Eccles that Anderson was giving his attention to. Hmm, said Ivor Smith. Well, Tommy, you always were a pretty good guesser. Who is Eccles? Don't you know? Haven't you any idea? I've no idea whatever, said Tommy. Without going into a long history, I went to him for some information about an old lady who was recently left an old lady's home. The solicitor employed to make arrangements for her was Mr. Eccles. He appears to have done it with perfect decorum and efficiency. I wanted her present address. He says he hasn't got it. Quite possibly he hasn't, but I wondered. He's the only clue to her whereabouts I've got. And you want to find her? Yes. I don't think it sounds as though I'm going to be much good to you. Eccles is a very respectable, sound solicitor who makes a large income, has a good many highly respectable clients, works for the landed gentry, professional classes and retired soldiers and sailors, generals and admirals, all that sort of thing. He's the acme of respectability. I should imagine from what you're talking about that he was strictly within his lawful activities. But uh, you're uh, interested in him, suggested Tommy. Yes, we're very interested in Mr. James Eccles. He sighed. We've been interested in him for at least six years. We haven't progressed very far. Very interesting, said Tommy. I'll ask you again. Who exactly is Mr. Eccles? You mean, what do we suspect Eccles of? Well, to put it in a sentence, we suspect him of being one of the best organizing brains in criminal activity in this country. Criminal activity? Tommy looked surprised. Oh, yes, yes. No cloak and dagger, no espionage, no counter-espionage, no plain criminal activity. 
He is a man who has, so far as we can discover, never performed a criminal act in his life. He has never stolen anything, he's never forged anything, he's never converted funds. We can't get any kind of evidence against him, but all the same, whenever there's a big planned organized robbery, there we find, somewhere in the background, Mr. Eccles, leading a blameless life. Six years, said Tommy thoughtfully. Possibly even longer than that. It took a little time to get onto the pattern of things. Bank hold-ups, robberies, private jewels, all sorts of things where the big money was. They're all jobs that followed a certain pattern. You couldn't help feeling that the same mind had planned them. The people who directed them and who carried them out never had to do any planning at all. They went where they were told, they did what they were ordered, they never had to think. Somebody else was doing all the thinking. And what made you hit on Eccles? Ivor Smith shook his head thoughtfully. It would take too long to tell you. He's a man who has a lot of acquaintances, a lot of friends. There are people he plays golf with, there are people who service his car, there are firms of stockbrokers who act for him, there are companies doing a blameless business in which he is interested. The plan is getting clearer, but his part in it hasn't got much clearer, except that he is very conspicuously absent on certain occasions. A big bank robbery, cleverly planned and no expense spared, mind you, consolidating the getaway and all the rest of it. And where's Mr. Eccles when it happens? Monte Carlo, or Zurich, or possibly even fishing for salmon in Norway. You can be quite sure Mr. Eccles is never within a hundred miles of where criminal activities are happening. Yet you suspect him. Oh, yes. I'm quite sure in my own mind, but whether we'll ever catch him, I don't know. The man who tunneled through the floor of a bank, the man who knocked out the night watchman, the cashier who was in it from the beginning, the bank manager who supplied the information, none of them know Eccles. Probably they've never even seen him. There's a long chain leading away, and no one seems to know more than just one link beyond themselves. The good old plan of the cell. More or less, yes. But there's some original thinking. Someday we'll get a chance. Somebody who oughtn't to know anything will know something. Something silly and trivial, perhaps, but something that, strangely enough, may be evidence at last. Is he married? Got a family? No. He has never taken risks like that. He lives alone with a housekeeper and a gardener and a butler valley. He entertains in a mild and pleasant way, and I dare swear that every single person who's entered his house as his guest is beyond suspicion. And nobody's getting rich. That's a good point you put your finger on. Somebody ought to be getting rich. Somebody ought to be seen to be getting rich, but that part of it's very cleverly arranged. Big wins on racecourses, investments in stocks and shares, all things which are natural, just chancy enough to make big money at, and all apparently genuine transactions. There's a lot of money stacked up abroad in different countries and different places. It's a great, big, vast, money-making concern, and the money's always on the move going from place to place. Well, said Tommy, good luck to you. I hope you get your man. I think I shall, you know, some day. There might be a hope if one could jolt him out of his routine. Or jolt him with what? Danger, said Ivor. Make him feel he's in danger. Make him feel someone's on to him. Get him uneasy. If you once get a man uneasy, he may do something foolish. He may make a mistake. That's the way you get chaps, you know. Take the cleverest man there is, who can plan brilliantly and never put a foot wrong. 
let some little thing rattle him, and he'll make a mistake. So I'm hoping. Now let's hear your story. You might know something that would be useful. Or nothing to do with crime, I'm afraid. Very small beer. Well, let's hear about it. Tommy told his story without undue apologies for the triviality of it. Ivor, he knew, was not a man to despise triviality. Ivor, indeed, went straight to the point which had brought Tommy on his errand. And your wife's disappeared, you say? It's not like her. That's serious. Serious to me, all right. So I can imagine. I only met your missus once. She's sharp. If she goes after things, she's like a terrier on a trail, said Thomas. You've not been to the police? No. Why not? Well, first, because I can't believe that she's anything but all right. Tuppence is always all right. She just goes all out after any hair that shows itself. She mayn't have had time to communicate. Mm, I don't like it very much. She's looking for a house, you say? That just might be interesting, because among various odds and ends that we've followed, which incidentally have not led to much, are a kind of trail of house agents. House agents? Tommy looked surprised. Yes, nice, ordinary, rather mediocre house agents in small provincial towns in different parts of England, but none of them so very far from London. Mr. Eccles's firm does a lot of business with and for house agents. Sometimes he's the solicitor for the buyers, and sometimes for the sellers, and he employs various house agencies on behalf of clients. Sometimes we rather wondered why. None of it seems very profitable, you see. But do you think it might mean something, or lead to something? Well, if you remember the big London Southern Bank robbery some years ago, there was a house in the country, a lonely house, that was the Thieves' Rendezvous. They weren't very noticeable there, but that's where the stuff was brought and cashed away. People in the neighbourhood began to have a few stories about them, and wonder who these people were who came and went at rather unusual hours. Different kinds of cars arriving in the middle of the night and going away again. People are curious about their neighbours in the country. Sure enough, the police raided the place. They got some of the loot, and they got three men, including one who was recognised and identified. Well, didn't that lead you somewhere? Not really. The men wouldn't talk. They were well defended and represented. They got long sentences in jail, and within a year and a half, they were all out of the jug again. Very clever rescues. I seem to remember reading about it. One man disappeared from a criminal court where he was brought up by two warders. That's right. All very cleverly arranged, and an enormous amount of money spent on the escape. But we think whoever was responsible for the staff work realized he made a mistake in having one house for too long a time so that the local people got interested. Somebody perhaps thought it would be a better idea to get subsidiaries living in, say, as many as thirty houses in different places. People come and take a house, mother and daughter, say, a widow or a retired army man and his wife, nice quiet people. They have a few repairs done to the house, get a local builder in and improve the plumbing, and perhaps some other firm down from London to decorate. Then after a year or a year and a half, circumstances arise, and the occupiers sell the house and go off abroad to live. Something like that. All very natural and pleasant. During their tenancy, that house has been used, perhaps for other unusual purposes. But no one suspects such a thing. Friends come to see them. Not very often, just occasionally. One night, perhaps a kind of anniversary party for a middle-aged or elderly couple, or a coming-of-age party. A lot of cars coming and going. Say there are five major robberies done within six months, 
But each time the loot passes through or is cashed in, not just one of these houses, but five different houses, in five different parts of the country. It's only a supposition as yet, my dear Tommy, but we're working on it. Let's say your old lady lets a picture of a certain house go out of her possession. And supposing that's a significant house. And supposing that that's the house that your missus has recognised somewhere and has gone dashing off to investigate. And supposing someone doesn't want that particular house investigated. It might tie up, you know. It's very far-fetched. Oh yes, I agree. But these times we live in are far-fetched times. In our particular world, incredible things happen. Somewhat wearily, Tommy alighted from his fourth taxi of the day and looked appraisingly at his surroundings. The taxi had deposited him in a small cul-de-sac, which tucked itself coyly under one of the protuberances of Hampstead Heath. The cul-de-sac seemed to have been some artistic development. Each house was wildly different from the house next to it. This particular one seemed to consist of a large studio with skylights in it, and attached to it, rather like a gumboil, on one side was what seemed to be a little cluster of three rooms. A ladder staircase painted bright green ran up the outside of the house. Tommy opened the small gate, went up a path, and not seeing a bell, applied himself to the knocker. Getting no response, he paused for a few moments and then started again with the knocker, a little louder this time. The door opened so suddenly that he nearly fell backwards. A woman stood on the doorstep. At first sight, Tommy's first impression was that this was one of the plainest women he had ever seen. She had a large expanse of flat, pancake-like face, two enormous eyes which seemed of impossibly different colours, one green and one brown, a noble forehead with a quantity of wild hair rising up from it in a kind of thicket. She wore a purple overall with blotches of clay on it, and Tommy noticed that the hand that held the door open was one of exceeding beauty of structure. Oh, she said. Her voice was deep and rather attractive. What is it? I'm busy. Mrs. Boscowan? Yes, what do you want? My name's Beresford. I wondered if I might speak to you for a few moments. I don't know. Really, must you? What is it, something about a picture? Her eye had gone to what he held under his arm. Yes, it's something to do with one of your husband's pictures. Do you want to sell it? I've got plenty of his pictures. I don't want to buy any more of them. Take it to one of those galleries or something. They're beginning to buy him now. You don't look as though you needed to sell pictures. Oh, no, I don't want to sell anything. Tommy felt extraordinary difficulty in talking to this particular woman. Her eyes, unmatching though they were, were very fine eyes, and they were now looking over his shoulder down the street with an air of some peculiar interest at something in the far distance. Oh, please said Tommy. I wish you'd let me come in. It's so difficult to explain. If you're a painter, I don't want to talk to you, said Mrs. Boscowan. I find painters very boring always. I'm not a painter. Well, you don't look like one, certainly. Her eyes raked him up and down. You look more like a civil servant, she said disapprovingly. Can I come in, Mrs. Boscowan? I'm not sure. Wait. She shut the door rather abruptly. Tommy waited. After about four minutes had passed, the door opened again. All right, she said. You can come in. She led him through the doorway up a narrow staircase and into the large studio. 
In a corner of it there was a figure and various implements standing by it, hammers and chisels. There was also a clay head. The whole place looked as though it had recently been savaged by a gang of hooligans. There's never any room to sit up here, said Mrs. Boscowan. She threw various things off a wooden stool and pushed it towards him. There, sit down here and speak to me. It's very kind of you to let me come in. It is rather, but you look so worried. You are worried, aren't you, about something? Yes, I am. I thought so. What are you worried about? My wife, said Tommy, surprising himself by his answer. Oh, worried about your wife? Well, there's nothing unusual in that. Men are always worrying about their wives. What's the matter? Has she gone off with someone or playing up? No, no, nothing like that. Dying? Cancer? No, said Tommy. It's just that I don't know where she is. And you think I might? Well, you better tell me her name and something about her if you think I can find her for you. I'm not sure, mind you, said Mrs. Boscowan, that I shall want to, I'm warning you. Thank God, said Tommy. You're more easy to talk to than I thought you were going to be. What's the picture got to do with it? It is a picture, isn't it? Must be, that shape. Tommy undid the wrappings. It's a picture signed by your husband, said Tommy. I want you to tell me what you can about it. I see. What exactly do you want to know? When it was painted and where it is. Mrs. Boscowan looked at him for the first time. There was a slight look of interest in her eyes. Well, that's not difficult, she said. Yes, I can tell you all about it. It was painted about fifteen years ago. No, a good deal longer than that, I should think. It's one of his fairly early ones. Twenty years ago, I should say. Do you know where it is? The place, I mean. Oh, yes, I can remember quite well. Nice picture. I always liked it. That's the little humpback bridge, and the house, and the name of the place is Sutton Chancellor, about seven or eight miles from Market Basing. The house itself is a couple of miles from Sutton Chancellor. Pretty place. Secluded. She came up to the picture, bent down, and peered at it closely. Well, that's funny, she said. Yes, that's very odd. I wonder now. Tommy did not pay much attention. What's the name of the house? he asked. I can't really remember. It got renamed, you know, several times. I don't know what there was about it. A couple of rather tragic things happened there, I think. Then the next people who came along renamed it. Called the Canal House once, or Canal Side. Once it was called Bridge House. Then Meadowside, or Riverside, was another name. Who lived there? Or who lives there now, do you know? Nobody I know. A man and a girl lived there when I first saw it. Used to come down for weekends, not married, I think. The girl was a dancer, may have been an actress. No, I think she was a dancer, ballet dancer. Rather beautiful, but dumb. Simple, almost wanting. William was quite soft about her, I remember. Did he paint her? No, he didn't often paint people. He used to say sometimes he wanted to do a sketch of them, but he never did much about it. He was always silly over girls. They were the people who were there when your husband was painting the house. Yes, I think so. Part of the time, anyway. They only came down at weekends. Then there was some kind of a bust-up. They had a row, I think. Or he went away and left her, or she went away and left him. I wasn't down there myself. I was working in Coventry then, doing a group. After that, I think there was just a governess in the house and the child. 
I don't know who the child was or where she came from, but I suppose the governess was looking after her. Then I think something happened to the child. Either the governess took her away somewhere or perhaps she died.'